Hi, this is Yaro Stark. The interview with Craig Ford is just about to begin and I know you're going to love it. If you're interested in selling a product online, having a product manufactured at wholesale, or you have any idea for a product that you'd like to have created, this is definitely the interview to listen to. Craig really breaks down many, many aspects of getting something produced usually in China, and then having it uh, shipped over to your home country where you can then sell it in the real world or online or however you like. And he has so much knowledge in this subject. So definitely a great interview to listen to. That's coming up now. But before it begins, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up to tell you about a new program I have called the EJ Insider. This is an interview club, a subscription program where I give you a series of new interviews specifically designed to help people who are either bloggers who are looking to sell information products online or any entrepreneur who's looking to get stories from experienced people who have a lot of in-depth knowledge about certain subjects online. These are interviews I haven't released anywhere else. They're usually much longer than my podcast interview because I like to go into the really nitty-gritty details of what made these people super successful. We're talking multi-million dollar bloggers, uh, people who are really good at direct response email marketing, and lots of great stories for entrepreneurs. So if you're looking to take this sort of interview and get more of them from me on a regular basis, premium interviews, please head to ejinsider.com forward slash interviews. That's where you find all the details about my new program, and I hope you find it interesting. That's it for this little promo. Now, here's the interview with Craig. Hello, this is Yara Stark, and welcome to an Entrepreneur's Journey podcast interview. Today, I have a guest that hopefully will be someone who can really fill some gaps that I feel are missing in the interviews I've done in the past which is, in this case, my guest, Craig Ford. Craig, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Yara. Now, Craig is an import specialist. He runs myimportlabel.com.au as a consultancy and a trainer and a teacher, but he's also been an agent doing it officially through government channels to basically help people uh, do importing, in particular, manufacturing in China. So you can get your product made in China and then sell it online or sell it wherever you live he specializes in Australia, given the .com.au. Now, I was talking to Craig before we started this interview to try and come up with some sort of big number we can tell everyone about how much money you've made or you've helped other people make or something like that. Now, Craig has an answer to that question. I'm going to let him say that. So, Craig, <laughs> what is your claim to fame? Uh, well, export advisory is, is a large part of my background. And in our last four-year contract, we supported... Queensland businesses to export more than $20 million in export sales to overseas markets. So markets all over the world, everywhere from Kazakhstan to the US and everything in between. And all kinds of products from e-learning software um, to clothing and fashion. Okay, so it's both sides of the fence, isn't it? You help with importing and exporting. That's, that's correct, yes. Which I assume would be quite different games. It is. It, well, it's um, obviously you've got uh, product going in, product going out. Um, you know, our background is in the exporting side and it's really about finding opportunities in overseas markets and then finding product that fits that opportunity. That's really the bread and butter of it. So importing is not that different in that we know the market better than, better than anyone else. It's the Australian market. And so it's a matter of finding 
what the product is that we can fit into, whether it's your Australian market or your home market, if that's the US or wherever it is. So the principles are very, very much similar. Mm, okay, so we could almost say, uh, at least as a somewhat of a goal in this call, is to talk about completing the circle, which is coming up with an idea, getting it produced overseas, importing it to wherever you are and having it then sold online to, and potentially exporting it. So you're importing manufacture the actual product and then selling it all around the world, which would be what most people do nowadays, especially with the internet, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it all depends on the products. I mean, some products are obviously better launched in the local market, build your brand and following locally, then go offshore. Um, many uh, businesses that we've worked with start with your local markets. New Zealand is a, is a no-brainer for us. Um, and then when they've got the resources, start strategic exporting. But really with, with online selling these days, you can start exporting from your first day of business. So Okay, well, I'd love to find out more about how you gained all the insight into this, this world of importing and exporting. So sure. as is tradition with Entrepreneur's Journey interviews, <laughs> let's take a trip down memory lane here with you, Craig. Can you uh, tell us, well, I guess the first thing, have you always been into the exporting and importing market or was there a career of different entrepreneurial projects as a teenager and you know, in, in your 20s or whatever it is you, you did those early projects? Yeah, look, there's certainly uh, probably my first real career role was um, sales for a very large-scale printing company. So we were producing nationwide magazines. Um, the internet, this was 97. I was 19 years of age, um, selling about 1.2 million in sales a year. And the internet had just come out of this stage. And even then, you know, web pages were basically glorified yellow pages ads at the time. But even then, we could say, wow, this is going to transform the printing industry because there's instant scalability at, at very low cost. Um, we were run by a, a multinational firm uh, out of Singapore that had arms in different markets. So we got to see what they were doing in different markets. Um, not shortly after, I did the usual Aussie thing and uh, backpacked for, for a number of years, living in England, um, six months in Spain teaching English and also in a kibbutz in Israel. But um, backpacking across 40-odd countries over, over several years, um, and in that time, collecting products and finding, sending products back uh, and seeing what sells and what doesn't. So at the time, you know, the internet you know, and eBay wasn't really a, a selling forum, and my brother and family would sell some products, still do, at markets, um, merge that onto an eBay platform now. Um, but, yeah, certainly different products over that period of time that I bring back say, let's give this a go. Sometimes the product would completely fail and other times it would go well purely because it's unique. Well, what so. sort of stuff were you buying? Was it just what you found interesting or did you have a, you know, a real strategy behind it? No, it's no, not interesting. The, the only principle was unique. It's got to be unique. It's got to be something that can't readily be bought within your local market. So something that grabs attention. So there's certainly a novelty factor, but for long-term sustainable sales. It's got to be novelty, but as well as a real function for the product as well. Can, so can, can you so remember, things are, was, yeah. Can you remember something that actually sold well? Like, tell, tell us a few of the, you know, maybe you were in the kibbutz in Israel and you, you found some sort of, I don't know, ancient Bible look-alike product that you could mass manufacture or something. Yeah, look, I can give you probably a good couple of examples of things that went well and not so well. Um, certainly the things that went well um, was in India, we found um, the margins were insane. So we found co uh, cosmetic jewelry, so basically designer jewelry. 
the low value jewelry, uh, camel bone. So we would buy it off the street for a dollar. We thought, wow, if we can buy this off the street for a dollar, what can we actually get it for from the manufacturer? So we traveled all the way out to Rajasthan, which is not surprisingly desert where all the camels are. <laughs> and <laughs> we could buy this really nice designer jewelry for, you know, around 20 to 30 cents. That sold in Australia for, you know, 20 to $30 a piece. Um, so this was this was my pre-wedding honeymoon with my wife, that trip to India. Right. So instead of going to a nice beach and relaxing, I dragged her to India and we traveled all over from Kashmir down to Kerala. And it's bought leather jackets, leather shoes, all kinds of stuff. But the, that cosmetic jewelry or the, the camel bone jewelry went really well. Um, it was a short-term product. I mean, you, you hit the market, it went really well for six to nine months and then the market catches up with you prices grind down a bit but it was a great example of finding a niche product fantastic uh, margins um, and taking it you know essentially taking a low-cost product and introducing it to a high-cost market and how are you selling because you're traveling and i can't imagine you can just grab a suitcase and fill, fill it full of jewelry did you order uh, from the manufacturer and have it shipped back to family in, in australia and then they'd sell it locally Actually, you can get a surprising amount of jewelry back. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you, literally a bit of both. So you'd stuff it full of stuff your suitcase with as much as that is feasible. So of course, uh, we can avoid some GST and import duty in Australia if you're under a thousand dollars in value for the products. So you can get those samples back, and, and we did that, and we tested the market, and you know the market feedback was fantastic, and that gave us the confidence to say, hey, we know this stuff can sell, we know what we can get for it, let's get a let's get some, you know, big parcels, and let's start moving this stuff because essentially it was the best thing about it as well. It was also small, so it was very easy to ship regularly. You didn't have to, you know, you don't have none of this twenty foot container stuff. You can get regular small shipments, and it was cost effective. I have this image of you coming into the Australian airport wearing all this jewelry on your arms and legs and neck just to try and get it in, saying, oh, no, just my jewelry. <laughs> and my wife as well. Yeah. So when you said you test the market, what, what vehicle? You said it was eBay eventually, but how did you find out if people wanted to buy this stuff? Friends and family and markets. So literally going out there and saying, do you like it? Do you, you know, what would you pay for it? Have you seen it before? Yeah, that was the first thing. Is it, is it available? Is this stuff around? Because essentially when you're overseas, you do see lots of products that are great. And then you come back here and, you know, the, the numbers might not stack up. There might not be a market. It might be that novelty factor where it's great, but people won't necessarily buy it and buy it continuously. So you do have to get that human feedback to really confirm your decisions. So it's really you don't want to be making guesses at that stage when you're going making a big order. You want to make sure that, one, there's a market and two, people will pay a good dollar for it. Okay. So as a very basic introduction to importing, you could get, head off to India or Bali or whatever, find mm -hmm. things that you think are unique and, and might sell, buy a sample that you could sell, go home, show it to your friends and your family and maybe hit some of the local flea markets and, and um, uh, you know the more upscale markets you might have, <laughs> see if they sell there. And if it does, then what would you do next? Well, you'd take that feedback and you would... Uh, look at the products that are moving well and obviously discard the ones that you don't get good feedback on. So you're informing that those decisions in your in your product development. Then go back to the manufacturer and start ordering larger volumes. But I think apart from those channels, really 
and jewelry is a good example, and baby products is another good example, where there are tons of independent retailers in Australia that are able to take on products from small guys. So they're, they're also a, a fantastic sales, um, sales channel for being able to get a bit of scale and you know, being able to knock on the door of an independent retailer and say, hey, I can supply you, you know, so many boxes of this product. If you think you can sell it, these are the sort of margins you can make. How about it? So that's a model that some of my clients have used very successfully. Okay, well, can you take us through, uh, even with your own story? So you, you're traveling as a young, early 20-something with your fiancé, and <laughs> you're buying product, and then are you thinking this is going to be my career, or are you hoping to get rich from a big hit from a product that just sells like hotcakes, like Crocs or something like that? Or Yeah. Take us, take us forward. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you have, um, yeah, we have plenty of mistakes you make along the way. So I know that there's... You know, in doing this, you know, you're paying more for freight than you should. Um, you're making mistakes and customers are giving you a call and, you know, you have to, stuff has to go through quarantine and that costs money. So you're making mistakes along the way. So I finished traveling and that was three odd years. I got back to Australia and said, right, let's do this properly. So I went and did an undergraduate degree in international business. Um, and that was also to fix my, my Spanish, which I spoke re- really well, but um, my grammar was appalling apparently. Hmm. So... So that was to basically get the theory and to get, uh, you know, get the knowledge behind what I was doing. Let's do it correctly. Uh, I did that uh, under an international business degree and then my career took a little bit of a turn uh, where I'd say I did, I did a big picture apprenticeship uh, doing export development but in a, in a uh, government role which is completely saps the entrepreneurial spirit of you, I can tell you now. Mm. But the, the role itself was fantastic. Um, apprenticeship because it was very big picture and essentially I was in a team, a very small team and we would look after the South Asia region because I was experienced with India by then and we would um, look at industries in India and look where there are Australian companies with high technology and services that could export to those sectors. So we started, we had a lot of big wins with the mining sector in India. We would contact uh, large Indian mining companies for coal and minerals and they're generally producing at very low rates, low levels of technology, uh, very low levels of safety as well. And we would um, facilitate them. We would bring those mine owners, decision makers to Australia, have a look at our mines, and we'd introduce them to the technologies in Australia. So that was a very big picture role. Um, you know, we're, talking, we're dealing with big mining companies and very big mining technology providers in Australia. And is, is essentially a matchmaking role where you're finding the opportunity and grabbing that technology or service that is locally produced and being able to introduce that to the market. So that was that was a fantastic apprenticeship for literally looking at markets, finding opportunities, and for supplies that we were for products that were or that we already had. Um, so, so How does that even start, though, Craig? I, I find that mind-boggling. Do, does someone from Australia just go to India and start walking around, or is there already established lines of communication? Because to know that the Indian mines are not safe and they're using old technology, how do you even learn that and then reach the decision-makers at those companies to convince them to buy Australian mining product? Yeah, no, that's a fair question. I mean, there are already established lines of communication through through um, business and through government channels. And we would uh, obviously go to market 
Uh, but we would also employ a local contractor, so an expert that already supplied to the industry in India, a local Indian company, and we would employ them to say, right, uh, engage with um, this mining company. So it was Tata Steel, and they've got a whole lot of coal mining operations, and assess this largest mine that they've got and tell us about the technology they're using. Are they using an ERP system or are they just sort of got a planning a whiteboard? Are they planning it on a whiteboard? Now tell us about the safety levels that they're using. You know, they've got underground mines. Are they using any sort of gas monitoring systems or are they just doing the old sending a canary into the coal mine? <laughs> so it's literally we would get that feedback and say, right, we can see that these guys are employing a ridiculous amount of people. They're producing a very low volume of coal out of the market. So, you know, we would get uh, quite a quite a large amount of funding and then we would start putting on programs to, to send Queensland or Australian companies over there and to get them into the face of the decision makers. So it's really big picture stuff. It's um, and it was very enterprising in being able to look at a brand new sector and say, right, how can we fit into this? And another example of that project was the aviation sector in India. So you have um, traditionally the aviation sector was controlled by a couple of big airlines, and it was then it was completely deregulated. So all of a sudden you've got all of these brand new airlines popping up overnight, and they don't have enough pilots or ground crew. So that was another opportunity whereby we engaged with all of these new uh, Indian aviation companies and said, right, we've got these world-class facilities for training pilots and aircrew in Australia. So this is a big difference from selling jewellery at a market that you found in India in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> you know, your career's obviously taken a turn. What, what were you enjoying in that process and what were you finding that you were learning? That obviously would eventually lead to you doing your own business with importing and exporting again. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess the, the principles, as I said, were the same in that you're essentially taking a you know, the, the model of a niche product or, or a low-cost product and introducing it into a market where there's a lot of demand or a high-cost market where there's big leverage on, on the sales margins. So even though those two projects sound completely different the principles are quite similar um what i didn't like about it of course is i wasn't in control i wasn't the salesperson it's it's very hard not being the salesperson yeah and you were on salary i presume too right yeah salary and this yeah as i said it's very draining on the entrepreneurial spirit so i still had a couple of little things i was running on the side still importing the occasional product but um, obviously that was my my main role at the time so look from there i mean i went and worked for it was frustrating so i went and worked for a mining technology company um, and that was selling software into into uh, mine sites all over the world. So those guys were already exporting their software to the US, to Canada, um, and to other South Africa, and all, all across Australia they were selling it. And so I helped them to introduce their software to three more mine sites. Very so good. that was, yeah, that just got my entrepreneurial spirit back. <laughs> so after that, what led you to I guess deciding well I mean it's a big leap to go from obviously you had two secure jobs right one was with the uh, agency the Australian government and then with mm -hmm. mining software to then do your own thing did you have concerns about you know traditional things like by then you're obviously married and you might have a mortgage I don't know but there's certainly more dependencies than when you were a 20 year old kid backpacking around the world um, you know it's easier to sort of think that oh I can 
play around with product and see what works and doesn't work because I've got enough time to fail. So as you got older, did that be something like was that something you were afraid of? Especially because now, what is it that you do right now? You are an independent business owner. Yeah, that's right. Well, I run my own business and we provide essentially an online learning and uh, software platform for startups and importers. So they hop on, they create a create an account and start learning how to import and launch product to market and they have the software and the tools to, to do the job as well. So so how did you create that? And like, there was some overlap here with the job that you had in creating this business, right? Yeah, well, there's a big gap here. And this was, so I left um, after the mining technology company, I went to, um, this is a role that myself and my wife have shared for six years. Uh, and this was this was another role, it was largely a consultant role. Um, and this is called Trade Start, whereby we had have and still have an exclusive contract in the Brisbane region to provide export advisory services to small business. So this is a very much sought after contract. Um, we've won it over a couple of periods now. The last period we beat um, professional management companies like BDO Kendall's Australian Institute of Export to secure the role. And that role is specifically working with, you know, over a four-year period, we'll probably come into contact with over 600 companies. We'll work very closely with about 150. Uh, and when I say companies, I mean largely small business, startups and small business, and we're advising them what market you should go into. We're advising them how to get into the market. You know, should they export online? Should they engage sales agents or distributors? Um or should they make it, you know, set up an office? Uh, and then also how to change your products for the market. So not only how to meet compliance requirements and standards, but also, you know, how to adapt the product to the customer tastes for that market. Mm. So this. So that's similar, it sounds like, to your own kind of business with myimportlabel.com.au. Can you maybe explain the difference between, the, the, you know, the trade, trade smart, was it? And trade start, yeah. Trade start and what, what my import label does? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this this really closes the gap in that we're working very closely with clothing, fashion, software companies, and we are able to get them to a very high level of capability in the export side. We could see that a lot of the product, a great majority of product, was coming in from China and other markets. So we couldn't help them on the import side. So really, it was really obvious to us that there's this huge knowledge gap in importing. There's lots of knowledge out there for exporting because the um, there's lots of programs to support bringing, you know, obviously, export revenue into the country, but there's no programs to support people who wants to import product because obviously that money's going out of the country. So mm. it was obvious to us that the companies that we were working with had very, very um, mediocre import supply chains. So that just slapped us in the face and said, wow, you know, this is a real opportunity where people, people want to know about importing, but they want the services that go around it as well you know there's a lot more to just grabbing a product and putting it on a plane and bringing it back there's you've got to know whether it's worthwhile to start and then you've got to know how to best take it to market to be able to sell it and get the best dollar for it so that was that was largely the 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 tool that made us look at my import label mm, and start okay. so when you say they have mediocre or mediocre importing systems and knowledge Mm-hmm. Can, can you give us some pr- practical examples? Like, where are companies going so wrong with their importing? Oh wow! There's yeah, I could tell you a, a 
a million stories. And we still we still get calls every week from people that are using um, online B2B supplies directories that are based in China and other markets and are getting not necessarily ripped off by fraudulent guys. That, that's probably a bit rarer these days. But inexperienced importers get taken off by genuine suppliers. And one example is this is a TradeStart client and she would just use the manufacturer's freight forwarder instead of using her own freight forwarder. Um, they would underwrite the value of the order. So when she went and exported those goods back to another market, instead of claiming back all of the duty and GST she paid, she couldn't, she couldn't claim any of that back. So she lost several thousand dollars in duty and GST paid. Um, that's just one small little mistake made of, of many that... Can you give us a few more? I'm just, I'm thinking of someone listening into this who might be thinking about importing and we could, I wouldn't mind doing a little bit of an example, but just for the mistake side of the fence, where do people go wrong besides that? Oh, look, I think before they even start is just not finding out what your actual costs are before you take product to market. Okay, well, um, let's let's do this properly then. Um, mm-hmm. I'm listening to this interview, Craig, and I run a website, or I'm thinking of starting up a website. Uh, I've got some traffic, and I'm thinking, you know, I want to have this great idea for, you know, even like uh, mutual friends we have, um, a couple of girls who are look, looking to sell in the model marketplace, and they're thinking of buying and importing products that uh, working and aspiring models would need to use, you know, from makeup to, you know, might be... Um, I don't even know I'm not a model, but let's go with makeup. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that uh, there's all kinds of different layers to There's so many different types of makeup and uh, mm-hmm. no doubt there's many things you could import. But, geez, I'm sitting in America or Australia or England or, you know, somewhere and I've, I've never even imported or bought wholesale or manufactured. I've got an idea for something that I could draw with pencil on a piece of paper, say, you know, it should look like this and have these sort of ingredients. How, what would you do next? Yeah, look, I mean, the first thing, I guess, is, is to set small targets and to try and get a quick return on revenue. So let's let's look at makeup, for instance. The first thing I would say to them is, you know, let's not go and make a brand new compound, a brand new product, and develop that with your own label and bring it back to Australia and sell it. Because that's going to take a very long time to bring to market and a lot of cost and sampling and, you know, meeting regulations as well. The easiest thing they could do to start, to just see if it works let's grab some makeup that's already been produced you can hop on alibaba and you know have a look at something that's already been produced stock standard bring it back and let's get some feedback on it so we'd say to those girls look throw it onto your blog and get some feedback from your customers throw it on facebook and get some feedback about whether it'll sell and then obviously we've got our program will run you through different product checks you can make so you want to know that the compounds are legal you know, that there's not lead in this, the, the makeup, for instance, that's obviously harmful to the person. So you want to make sure that the product actually can be safely imported. You want to make sure that it can be uh, legally imported and you want to make sure that there's actually a dollar in it as well. But importantly, and this is an area that many, many importers will come unstuck, is they will launch into a big import project, uh, what we call an OEM or custom job, um, without understanding how much work's involved in bringing it to market. So the first step would be, let's bring a really simple product back and let's achieve that first step. Make some quick sales and get some feedback. And then we can say, all right, well, look, we've sold you know a few hundred cases of this makeup. It's gone pretty well. 
we want to make some changes. First thing the girls might want to do is put their own label on it. I mean, that's obvious. When you put your own label on a product, you can create um, a premium brand. And with that premium brand, you can ask for more money for the product. You can create a fantastic social media strategy. And you can also corner the online market as well. So that's, that's one area whereby they can make a small adjustment to that product and greatly improve the marketability and their sales margins. So how hard is it to go to, you know, was it Alibaba for yep. people who don't know what is that? So Alibaba.com is the largest uh, business to business supplier directory in the world. It is um, a, an absolute phenomenon. So Alibaba has largely shaken up the sourcing industry in the last three or four years, whereby now, three or four years ago, you would have gone to a sourcing company. They would have charged you between three and 12 grand to go and find a manufacturer in China and they would help you uh, bring the product back to your market. And that's about it. That's, that's what they do. They, they facilitate introduction to um, manufacturers. So Alibaba, is, they've got a you know, phenomenal database of manufacturers and suppliers, mostly in China, but also in other markets. So really... You don't need to pay that big money anymore to go and research and to find supplies in overseas markets because it's all online. It's all for free. So I could search Alibaba and I type in foundation or something like that for makeup. Yep. And then I'd have all these suppliers there who could, could provide this for me. Mm -hmm. I'd pick one. Mm -hmm. How do I get my own label made for it? Well, this is the start of the negotiation. <laughs> From the very first contact when you ask the questions, the negotiations already started. And this is where people need a little bit more help and support. So really, it's the part of the manufacturing process is it's obviously more complex to print or emboss your label onto that product. And that's, you would arrange it. You'd negotiate it as part of the manufacturing process. So generally, you'd be asking them, you know, can we white label this? That would be the first question. Can I put my own brand on it? Or you'd say, ODM, which is Original Design Manufacturer. So that would be the question. They'll generally, it's a very common request, and the the price will be adjusted, and perhaps the minimum order quantity or the MOQ will be adjusted as well. Okay, and then how do you know if you're going to make a minimum order just to test whether your audience wants it? What's like you're not getting ripped off in terms of what you're paying for. Like you might have in your head, okay, the makeup's going to be positioned at twenty five dollars uh, mm -hmm. each a unit, but you know the the wholesale rate might be four dollars or a dollar or ten dollars. How do you know what's fair? Is it a case of just looking at as many different suppliers and asking them their rates? Yeah, and this this so I guess to answer it simply, there is no magic bullet. There's probably you know we work through probably 12 to 15 steps in that negotiating, importing um, and testing phase and sampling phase by which you run through the steps that mitigate these risks, i.e. you want to know, number one, are these guys fraudulent? And that's pretty easy to find out these days. As I said, the, the incidence of fraud is uncomfortably high, but it is certainly uh, cutting down a lot. Secondly, you want to know that the product is can be imported. And you also want to know that it can be um, sold and, the, and, and, and it is what it is, you know, so the compounds are quality. So 
But that's where you get samples back. So you, you wouldn't go and make an order for a start. You would order samples. And we certainly suggest to clients to go and order samples from at least three suppliers, and then you test them. And when I say test, I mean uh, quality testing. So you obviously, if, you, if it's clothing, which, which we do a lot of, you're stretching it, you're testing that fabric, you're leaving it on the clothesline for days, you're throwing it in the dry, dry wet, you're testing shrinkage, you're testing the seams. So that's that's one example. Something like makeup, however, you I would be strongly encouraging the girls to get a lab test. Test that compound in there. Let's test the breakdown of the different compounds to make sure they are what they say they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once upon a time, again, that was difficult. You've got guys in China... You can even get that done in China with international companies. They have offices in every single city in China, or every major city, sorry. And that test can, you know, it's $250 to $300. So it's a no-brainer to get that done. And the third part of the testing is, of course, the market testing, which we've alluded to before. So the girls would put that makeup online and say, wow, here's some fantastic foundation that we've got. It's completely different. You know, what, we, what is it about it that you like? What don't you like about it? We're giving some samples away. And they would get that feedback that would help them decide, wow, do we, how do we develop this product or you know, how much of this product do we actually need? Okay. I remember several years ago, there was a, a bit of a craze in drop shipping. Mm-hmm. Yes, which sounded great. You just you know go to something like Alibaba instead of though needing to buy it wholesale and ship a bunch of product and you know stick it in your garage and, and have it sent out maybe by yourself if you're just getting started by trekking on down to Australia Post or something and or UPS if you're in the states or whatever and and sending product out like that. But with drop shipping, you just fill out a form and they send it straight to your customer. Is that something that's still done or? Uh, it is, it, it's marketed, but we actively discourage all clients from doing it. Um, and let me qualify that by saying in the early stages, um, it's just not feasible. And, and look, I've, I've got a blog on this that is very well read. Um, and we talk about the reasons why drop shipping is unsustainable. Number one is that there's no accountability. You know, the person that's the, essentially the importer is, is um, just finding a customer and they're trusting the manufacturer to send the product that is up to spec to that customer with no faults. So that raises a a whole lot of um, issues, certainly under Australian laws, where the product is not up to scratch, then dropship is is responsible for getting the situation right. So reimbursing the customer or sending them another product. You also have to trust the manufacturer, obviously, to get the product up to spec. Uh, and certainly there are some payment providers that have withdrawn support for dropshipping models in some degrees because people were, would essentially buy the goods um, on credit and then try to sell them and recoup the, recoup the money instead of investing money into it. So you really it gets back to the accountability and if there's no accountability then the, the model falls over. So dropshipping um, was a very utopian idea but it really didn't work and um, let me qualify that by saying once you're in a position that you have established good working relationships with a manufacturer, um, and let's look at something like furniture because the other, the other issue with dropshipping is it's not scalable. You're essentially ordering one or two products at a time and sending it over. Chinese manufacturers want to talk about thousands of products at a time. So it's, it doesn't work in that regard as well. However, if you've got something big 
big ticket item like furniture, you've got a track record with that manufacturer and they obviously produce that product one at a time. That is a circumstance whereby you can market that product, you can have it custom made in Indonesia is also very popular for furniture. And then you can send that, have that product made and then sent straight to the customer. Obviously, you'd still get quality inspections done in the market, but that is an, uh, an exception whereby that dropship, the principles of dropshipping can be used effectively. Okay. Can you tell us a bit more about what you actually end up doing with my import labels? You've, you've touched upon, I can see, some areas where I mean, I'd be going in blind for sure. I, I wouldn't be thinking about a lot of these things. You're talking about like getting a you know, lab tested and uh, I guess it makes sense, but you don't sort of think about these things. And, you know, even if I want to sell something from Entrepreneur's Journey, like let's say I decide I want to have a, a custom business card holder made uh, with the, the EJ logo on it or something like that. And even just to give a, give a few away to, to my, my paying members and things like that. And I, I wanted to go to Alibaba and look it up and then find a way to get it engraved with my logo and things like that. Can you sort of give us a, a typical case study, even a real case study, if, if you have a client you can you know, mention on an interview like this? Sure. Uh, uh, in what, where they come from when they first approach you and at what, where do you take them to? Like what, what, where do you lead them through your, your coaching and your teaching? Yeah, so look, we, we started My Import Label as a, as a full-service agency. So literally a client would come to us and say, I want to set up a clothing label. I want to set up this product label. So we would do the sourcing for them. Literally, I'd, I was in China very regularly in the factories, meeting with the factory owners, uh, bringing the product back, launching the online stores, creating their brand and essentially handing it over to the client. Um, that was yeah, very popular. In fact, it was too popular for us because we could only handle so many clients because it was a labor and very labor-intensive business. Um, as a result of doing that, it was pretty obvious to us that there was a, a few points. Number one, that there were many, many more people who didn't have the budget. You know, startups have a modest budget, have finite resources. Um, so we would get a lot of interest from people who wanted to have a go, but didn't couldn't commit to that sort of extent. You know, we we're charging ten to fifteen thousand dollars. So we said, right, well, we need to make these this knowledge and these processes available to people so that they can just give their product idea a go without sacrificing the mortgage or even sacrificing you know the, their lunch money. So we switched the business to to an online platform. We, we've automated instead of spending realms of time coaching people we, we put it into an online learning platform so people can access these processes and, and that information for how to for how to assess and qualify and import the products uh, they can do that online much more readily for a fraction of that cost that we used to charge so let me give you one example um, this is a really good product so it's called my pet tracker it's mypettracker.com.au and this is a client of mine called Monique she's over way over the other side of Australia in Perth and she came to me and said, look, I've got an idea for a product. It's, it's a GPS tracker for dogs. Um, so it's something that you would fix to a dog's collar and you could find where your dog is. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, that's look, cool. it's a very cool product. And I could relate to it because we've got a dog that um, we end up spending $8,000 on after he got hit by a car. So I thought, wow, I can definitely see the demand for it. And so look, we found the manufacturers in China. There was a whole lot of um, 
technical issues that we had to work through as well with the client. Um, I've obviously with my background working with technology products, I was very familiar with GPS um, and mobile devices and what the ins and outs of those were. Um, we got quite a few different samples of the product for the client, tested them out. Of course, my dog still wanders about even though he's only got three legs. <laughs> and and uh, we road tested it and you're just to see what's this product, what's its limitations, is it that effective, can it solve the problem, can I find my dog when he goes missing because and other than that, council fines are also quite expensive not to mention vet fees. So certainly we were overwhelmed by the demand. You know, we did the, the Facebook, the blog, um, blog commenting and getting feedback and people were saying to us, yes, we really need this because uh, yeah, people spend a lot of money on their dogs. Mm. Uh, they love their dogs; a part of the family. How did you ask people that question? Did you just write a little post in Facebook saying we're thinking of making a GPS tracker for your pet? Would you be interested in buying one? Well, there is a phenomenal amount of traffic for lost cats and dogs online. Mm. So people looking at directories saying, "Where's my dog? My dog's gone missing," uh, and the associated search phrases. So we would tap into some of that traffic and say, look, we've got this product. You know, what do you think about it? What would you be prepared to pay for it? Um, so, yeah, that gave us the confidence to say, wow, this is a really viable product and there is a ready market ready to go and, and it's, un, it's unmet demand at the moment. Um, we went through a, a very lengthy process of making sure it complied with um, the Australian Communications and Media Authority. So we, what we call an ATIC compliance um, that cost the client quite a bit of money and I can tell you there's no way she would have had the confidence to go through with that if she didn't know that the product was viable uh, and profitable. So uh, I think that was, I think it probably cost her, oh geez, six to $8,000 to get that compliance. So it was a significant barrier and probably a barrier that most people would have stopped at. But with that knowledge, we knew that we knew that she was onto a winner. So um, fast forward a couple of months, we've got the compliance, um, we negotiated her ODM, so we put her own, we've created our own brand, put our own label under that product, and uh, we're now blitz, blitz launching the market across Australia, and she's getting um, fantastic feedback on Facebook friends. She's getting uh, I think a couple hundred new Facebook friends a week um, through marketing and also through advertising, and purely going after dog owners, dog and cat owners that are worried about their dogs, mm. dogs and cats going missing. I can imagine that's quite a unique piece of technology. I'd be daunted trying to find that at wholesale and, and being confident that it worked and you know, getting it small enough to fit on a, an animal, all those little niggling things. It's, there's got to be more to it than just searching through Alibaba and finding little GPS boxes and thinking, okay, I can attach that to a pet, right? Because there's some design required in something like this and some technology required. So is that hard? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this was, I will make the, the difference here. This was an ODM product. It wasn't actually a custom developed product. So it was already available on Alibaba. But we had to make sure it complied and, and fit the Australian market. Um, we didn't guess on the manufacturer, so we spent, I was with the client uh, and the translator and we went to the manufacturer's premises, uh, we saw the product being made, we tested it there, we viewed their certifications for the US and the EU market. 
So, and we saw you know, manufacturing assembly. We saw uh, how the product came together. So, there's no way we would have gone ahead with that without seeing that product being made and and becoming familiar with the people that are making it and seeing how genuine it was. And when you uh, say you saw it, you went to China and saw all that. So yeah, yeah. so in China, right. Yep. I can see why the the research phase is important because we're talking about a compliance fee. The traveling to China part costs obviously a few thousand dollars as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of upfront potential cost here, so you do want to know there's actually demand for something. Especially, I mean, that's the thing with physical goods; you always have a cost upfront. So, I think by the sounds of it, Craig, you are a big fan of a pre-research phase before doing anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the sort of project where. If you wanted to just jump into it and not do that background research, she would have done the compliance, um, done the MOQ, or minimum order quantity order, and easily coughed up 10 to 15 grand. That stage one phase of getting that feedback, literally, I mean, she did that for less than a thousand bucks. So right now, I mean, our program's what, you know, less than 500. You can hop on Alibaba and order some samples for and ship them to Australia for less than 500. So really, you've got that confidence to give the give it give it a go before you before you're going and invest your life savings into it. How important do you think it is to go to China for these sorts of things? It sounds like a lot of people do do that, and I I like the idea of of seeing the product I'm potentially going to sell to people being made mm-hmm. for confidence. But then again, I also feel a sense of. I don't know whether I'm being swindles and what I'm looking at when I get to China and, and there's a language barrier. How do you find all that? Look, it's certainly it's very tempting to just stay at your desktop and, and to order from your desktop. But you've got to remember that I mean, China and India and many developed markets are relationship-based markets. They don't really rely on the, the rule of law like Australia and the US do. Where things go wrong, well, you know, we can chat to a lawyer and we can sort it out this way. You're dealing with the Wild West in many ways in China. Um, you don't have the rule of law to fall back onto. So you can put a whole lot of risk mitigation steps in place to make sure that um, the supplier isn't a swindler. But one thing I repeatedly emphasize to clients is look, on a long term basis, it's really not that expensive to go to China. Um, from Brisbane, you can fly direct to Guangzhou for. They're 900 bucks return. You can get there in a day, eight hours each way. And to go and meet that factory owner and to meet the staff that are producing it is invaluable. It's by far and away the best risk management strategy you can have because once you get to the factory, um, all of the facts that are posted online, you know, some of them you realise are just not correct. Um, you find out things from the factory that you just wouldn't otherwise find out. Um, let me give you an example. I mean, we were, we were sourcing very high-quality women's um, fashion leather shoes. So we went to a very good manufacturer. Everything stacked up. Um, all the details, all their credentials and everything. But on their manufacturing floor, they were producing very cheap kids' booties, you know, that you'd probably see in, in an apartment store for about $10. Um, and they were trying to convince us that they could produce very boutique, you know, this high-level women's leather shoes. And I wasn't convinced because the manufacturing processes was large-scale, low-quality when they were actually – they wanted to produce for us very low, uh, very low-scale, very high-quality um, craftsmanship and materials. 
And that was, and as we were leaving the premises as well, my translator um, said to me, look, look at all these signs on the wall here and they are having trouble getting staff because they're out of the major manufacturing region. <clears throat> so while they were a very, um, very good supplier, there was a few alarm bells ringing to us to say, right, I don't know if they're as good in producing this product as they say they are, and I've got a question mark over their skills if they're having this much trouble getting consistent um, quality staff that can produce these goods. So, you know, I mean, this, yeah, on the other side of that, We've been to other factories where we've met with a factory owner and as soon as we've had lunch with a factory owner, wow, we come back to Australia and, and as soon as we make a request, the his staff just jump all over us. They could not be more helpful. So that personal connection with the factory owner is just, it's just essential. I cannot rate it highly enough. So, Look, certainly in the early stages, you don't need to go to China and that expense and that hassle. Certainly in that, that stage one, the sampling phase, no need whatsoever. As soon as you're looking to to engage into, into a commercial order, really the expense um, of that 900 bucks in a few days in China is money well spent, a wise investment in your long-term business. And it's obviously easy to get a translator to come with you, that sort of thing? Yeah, look, we've got girls on the ground in China and that's exactly what they do. And it's certainly easy to get a translator. Um, you do want a translator. Or you would prefer to be hearing the words from translator that you've engaged. Um, but look, with that said, I mean, China's a fantastic place. It's very friendly, but it's not that easy to get around if you don't um, speak some other language. Now, we've mentioned China a lot. That's not the only place. You said India as well. Do you have certain opinions on where to go? Like, Are other countries better for certain types of product? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is a really good point because, look, the east coast of China in particular is becoming more expensive. The cost of living there is, is increasing. Um, and certainly we've noticed with clothing in the Guangzhou, southern China region, is getting quite expensive. So they're becoming more expensive than Vietnam. Um, Vietnam is actually a very good bargain place. Um, and certainly your large, you know, your Walmarts of the world are getting a lot manufactured in Bangladesh um, and to a lesser extent India as well. So the markets um, is, is a really important choice. Uh, they've got to specialise in that product and they've got to have manufacturing expertise. Um, and you've got to learn about that as well. So we provide a bit of information about how you can learn which markets are better for which products. But also, I mean, there are a bunch of other factors um, that go into consideration as well. Um, we've got several modules on how to select a manufacturer. Um, certainly, the attraction for China, though, is they have so much industry across so many different products that is already exporting. And another very important rule of thumb I'll bring up here is if you're starting up importing, you want to deal with a manufacturer that's already exporting to either the US, the EU, or Australia, because the quality that we demand in our markets are very high. So you don't want to deal with a manufacturer that's you know, only dealing in the Chinese domestic market. Generally speaking, they do accept the lower quality product and materials. So it's very important to ask that question. Where are you already exporting to? But there aren't any rules of thumb in terms of you know, get clothing from here and get electronics from here or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Different. Uh, there are different clusters of regions in China that produce different products. Yeah, Shenzhen, for instance, is infamous for their electronics. Guangzhou 
is infamous for their, their clothing and Dongguan for shoes. I mean, Vietnam is a major manufacturer and exporter of clothing uh, as well uh, to the US, but not so much to Australia. Um, India has a fantastic textiles industry, very diverse. Um, yeah, Pakistan, in, for instance, is really great with leather. Hmm. I guess it's the so sort of inside yeah, knowledge are. you pick up yeah, as yeah. you're working, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, I have to ask this question because I know some people will be thinking this, and I've, my readers have thought this before when it comes to doing anything outsourcing, is the issue of exploitation. Now, when you tour a factory, obviously, you probably have better chance to see this. But are there ever concerns of, you know, underpaid labor or standards of safety or, you know, quality of work that you should look out for, uh, for any signs of even, you know, child labor to, to that degree when, when you start doing something like this? Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's two important points that you raise there. So I'll address these separately. I mean, the first one is child labor and that social exploitation uh, I mean, there's, and the second one is, is the quality issue. That child exploitation, I mean, of course we know it exists and it's been a PR disaster for a few big companies, you know, the Knights and, and other places. Um, personally, I've never found any child labour in Chinese factories and there are you know, quality control firms that we use um, and they do what we call social responsibility audits and they will check environmental concerns, they'll check social welfare concerns as well. So you can actually get a social audit of the factory that you're dealing with. Um, on the flip side, you can actually then use that as a selling point as well. So that's you can actually use that as a very strong selling point and say, we've had our factories, they all comply, they're all environmentally friendly and they all um, pay their staff well and, and equitable as well. So you can turn that into a positive. It doesn't and, – and look, the cost of an audit is – not that significant that you wouldn't bother if, if that's a concern to you. Although I will say it, it's, as I said, I have never found child labour in Chinese factories ever. Um, the second point you make, though, is about quality. And this is another really important rule of thumb that I will say when you are selecting and deciding between manufacturers. If you get, if you get a, a sample that is um, well-made, so good craftsmanship, but it is poor materials, and that's quite easy to actually negotiate the better quality materials. So it's quite easy. I mean, we provide a lot of steps to do this, but to be able to go back to the manufacturer and say, look, you know, this jeans are a good example. Now, this quality of denim is actually too thin. It, it's poor, but the craftsmanship is really, and the style is really good. We like it. That's a good reason to stay with that manufacturer if they agree and if they can prove to you that they can get the required quality denim. On the flip side of that, if you get a pair of jeans that are really quality, you know, that the fabric is good, but the craftsmanship is poor, it is very difficult to get that manufacturer to increase that quality of their craftsmanship because you know, that strikes at the heart of their business. They need to improve the skills of their workers and they might not even have the quality processes or even the equipment to be able to produce to that required standard. So this is a really important rule of thumb is that quality of craftsmanship is not up to scratch you should be seriously considering moving to another manufacturer. Okay. Craig, what a lot of information you provided here. <laughs> That's a ton. Clearly, you know your subject really well. I'm hoping everyone listening here, they're sort of thinking, I've got a blog, I've got an existing audience. I'd actually like to test some physical product that they have at least a pathway now. Certainly, Alibaba is a starting point. 
um, your site, myimportlabel.com.au. What do you provide there in terms of both structured courses and, and free information and, and coaching or anything like that? Yeah, so look, we've got an online uh, learning platform with software. So essentially, you can log on to our website and create a free account. Uh, we've got a six-week program. Uh, it goes over six steps. And within six weeks, you can run through we, we run through about 15 learning modules per week. So there's more than 70 learning modules over the six weeks. And within that six weeks, you, we compact everything we know into that program. So before you go and launch into a product and go and invest, we want people to be up to speed and to make you know, essentially become an expert importer in, in six weeks. That's what we provide. Uh, we've got the tools to make the task easier, so templates and checklists, um, criteria for how we assess a manufacturer. We've got online store software with a blog as well, so that's click to launch and you've got your own uh, online store, which you can certainly start building and start optimising while you're at the sampling stage. So it's a it's a very low-cost resource that you can hop onto and with a pay-as-you-go subscription model with no lock-ins. So it's, it's designed to get people at the startup stage uh, to be able to test their idea without committing vast sums of money or resources. Which sounds fantastic. What do you personally do nowadays, Craig? Like, what, what's, what's the, the working week like for you? Our working week is um, I run monthly webinars, of course. With So part of our membership is that we provide um, Q, uh, webinars on different topics with Q&A. So that um, takes up a bit of time as well as I provide coaching as well. So, of course, people do the program and they may have a specific circumstance or needs for their product or business requirements. They engage us to do different coaching as well. So we've got a few different coaches that we provide based on the specific requirement, whether it's online. Uh, my wife, of course, her expertise is exporting of fashion and clothing. So she is in demand. And then, of course, I cover large parts of the business as well. So it's largely dealing with our paid members, people that have come onto our program and helping them to troubleshoot issues and um, just overcome those challenges of the startup phase that mm -hmm. um, seem to bog people down. And, and, and uh, I'm assuming like, this is what still floats your boat sort of thing in terms of like, do you have any big plans for any, any new businesses? Because I have to admit, it must be tempting knowing so much about importing and exporting <laughs> to go and start like a, product, a business every time you see a cool product. It is, it is very tempting. I mean, and there's, look, there's a couple of parts to this. One is that I have very, uh, very strict confidentiality agreements with clients. So we do have plenty of secret squirrels that come to us and um, get us to, to uh, sign non-disclosure agreements. Uh, and look, I don't have a business if we can't do that. So that's important. Um, but I do have other clients who come to me and say, look, look, I need a professional partner on board and we are open to engaging with people on a on an equity basis and looking at um doing the doing the task for them and bringing product to market where they basically want to focus on the selling of the product and they want us to get the product for them so that's also an area that um they're engaged with and i have a i have a mate down the gold coast who's got a fantastic technology product that we're doing that at the moment which is a uh, a broadcast uh, mobile marketing software any other cool products that you you know got your fingers in? Are <laughs> it must be cool. Kind of as an entrepreneur, you can you could sort of have many different products selling 
because you're just the the partner for the you know the consulting with the importing and exporting but you know you could be selling jewelry and underwear and leather shoes do you have any projects like that uh there's plenty of there's always new technology products if you're looking for a hot area i mean small uh consumer niche technologies like the gps tracker for dogs um that was a fantastic example and there are you know the thing with technology it gets cheaper and it becomes more complex as it as it uh, evolves and as it becomes cheaper it opens up all these new markets so technology is a, a great area to look for for new emerging products you know these, that pet tracker for instance that's quite um, that software's you know that technology's been around for years gps as well as a sms but because it's become so much cheaper it's opened up this new it's opened up this new market once upon a time you wouldn't have thought to put a a mobile phone type device on a dog's collar because it just wasn't worthwhile but now it is Mm. all right uh we'll wrap it up craig any last words of wisdom or advice uh like it sounds like your journey's been very much tied in importing and exporting like through entire life working life so far so you know clearly you're meant to do this anything any passing words i'd say to people i mean it's don't try to do everything yourself um, because if you try and master everything, you'll never get started. And you can start up lean and test that product idea out without you know, spending the, the Christmas money. You can give that product idea a go before you go and commit to a large commercial order. That's, um, that would be my advice. Okay, fantastic. So, uh, Craig Ford from myimportlabel.com.au. Thank you, Craig, for spending this hour with me and, and sharing all this fantastic information i have to admit i'm going to go check out alibaba now just out of curiosity to see what sort of stuff i could start selling online i have a feeling there's a bunch of people who who sell on ebay who must love alibaba because that 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 would be a great combination there your 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 source of goods and your distribution channel for marketing hence probably a lot of competition too but um i'm let's not let's not go down that that uh, discussion right now craig we'll read that an hour so thank you for joining me and for everyone else listening in, you know where to go. If you want more interviews like this, you can head to entrepreneurs-journey.com or Google my name, which is Yarrow, Y-A-R-O, and you'll find all my podcasts there. There's over 80 of them with fantastic and uh, very experienced entrepreneurs like Craig who share their stories. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you again very soon. Thanks, Yarrow. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Craig. I think it's one of the best ones we've had on the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. A reminder again, if you are looking to join my EJ Insiders Club, if you love this interview with Craig and you want more on a regular basis, please go to ejinsider.com forward slash interviews and you'll find all the details about my new club, which you can join now. Thanks again for listening. My name is Yara Stark and I hope to see you in the EJ Insider program. Bye-bye.